There is an unfortunate tendency today among both Christian and non-Christian alike to overemphasize an aspect of Jesus' personality and character to the exclusion of its opposite. And that is, there is, in my opinion at least, an overemphasis on the humility and gentle spirit of Jesus to the neglect of his confidence and strength. Now, there are a number of good reasons for that. Jesus himself in Matthew 11 said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, and don't miss this, gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What's more, Jesus said that he did not come into this world to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Additionally, as you go through the Gospels, you discover that the vast, vast majority of the interactions that Jesus had with people, you, you see him demonstrating patience and kindness and gentleness. Rarely does Jesus ever raise his voice in anger or frustration or physically attack a person. And I'm sure that you have noticed that that perception has made its way into Christian art, where oftentimes Jesus is portrayed as weak and effeminate. He's almost frail and fragile. He's the type of person that if you walked up behind him and said, boo, he would jump out of his skin no doubt many think that when Jesus was growing up in Nazareth, he was probably the last one picked for a neighborhood game of soccer, basketball, or baseball. I mean, he just wasn't a manly little boy or athletic. And yet this morning, I'm going to suggest that that is a completely false picture. And it's a picture that is shattered in a violent incident that occurs at the beginning of Jesus' ministry where he cleanses the temple. And what you find here is Jesus acting in a strong, vigorous, manly way. And what Jesus does is he displays a holy anger against sin and the religious commercialism of his day. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to the passage we read from, John chapter 2. And I want us to look at this incident that occurs at the beginning of Jesus' life or ministry. Let me quickly set the context for you. Jesus has just launched his earthly ministry. For the first 30 years, he's been living in the obscurity of Nazareth as a Galilean carpenter. But it's now time for Jesus to step out of the shadow, as it were, and put himself on a public stage and establish his claim as Israel's Messiah. And he does so, as you read John's gospel carefully, with two signs that present a complementary picture of his character and mission. In the first, you find Jesus miraculously providing wine so that a wedding feast could continue, and then in the second, you see Jesus violently cleansing the temple courts. 
And I'm going to suggest this morning that these two contrasting pictures very much agree with the New Testament portrait of Christ as both Savior and Lord, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and as the Lion of Judah. I want you to notice how he begins. In verse 13, it says that the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. It's very interesting to note that John's gospel keeps very careful track of time by means of the various festivals that were on the Jewish calendar. The ministry of Jesus took place during a time span encompassing three Passovers. The first is recorded in John 2, the second in John 6, and the third in chapters 13 through 21, where you have the third Passover when Jesus was crucified. And the major point made by the first Passover when Jesus visited Jerusalem is his zeal for worship, as well as his hatred and disgust of commercialized religion. Now, as we look at this, I think it's important to remember something. And that is, this was by no means his first Passover in Jerusalem. But he's going there this time under totally different circumstances. He goes there as someone who is about to declare himself to be the long-awaited and anticipated Messiah of Israel. As I'm sure most of you are aware, the Passover was the greatest and most celebrated of the Jewish holidays on their calendar. What 4th of July is to an American, or at least used to be, Passover was to a Jew. It was the celebration that commemorated the Exodus when God delivered the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt. You remember that God had raised up a deliverer by the name of Moses who marched into the courts of Pharaoh and said, let my people go. The Israelis had been in Egypt ever since the time of Joseph, 400 years earlier. They had grown from a small clan of people to a massive nation, probably numbering close to several million. And now it's time for them to return to the land they'd come from, to the land that God had promised them. But the problem was that Pharaoh stubbornly refused until God sent a death angel throughout the land of Egypt. And unfortunately, the firstborn in every home died an untimely death unless the people who lived in that home took blood and applied it to the side and over the door's entrance. And then that death angel would pass over that home and spare that family the grief of death. And ever since that unbelievable event, God's people had remembered that deliverance with a celebration. And Jesus, no doubt, being raised in a very religious home with a godly mother named Mary and a godly father named Joseph, had gone to Jerusalem many times before. In other words, I want to suggest that this was not the first Passover that Jesus had gone to. He lived not far from Jerusalem, 
Passover was one of the three annual feasts where all Jewish males 20 years and older were expected to come to Jerusalem because that was where the temple was. And the temple was the center of religious worship. And it was there that the Israelis would go to remember and to celebrate that event. Now, in order for us to, I think, fully appreciate this, this event, I want to take a few minutes and talk about the temple. Because it was really a, a key part of Israel's worship. It was the center of activity in the city of Jerusalem, as well as an architectural masterpiece. David, who was Israel's second king, originally conceived in his heart a desire to build a temple for the Lord. But as you read his life and the accounts recorded for us in the Old Testament, because David was a man of war and who had shed blood, God said that he would not permit him to build the temple, but that his son Solomon would do that. And so the mantle of responsibility for building the temple fell to the shoulders of Solomon. And four years into his reign, in the year 969 B.C., Solomon began construction on the temple. And seven years later, it was completed. From what we know about Solomon's temple, it was a magnificent structure. As you might imagine, Solomon, who was one of the wealthiest men who has ever lived, spared no expense. What's more, he had only the finest craftsmen in all Israel work on it. It was a structure that was made of cedar and cypress wood from Lebanon, much of it overlaid with gold. It had white, hard limestone that was used in its construction. And for a number of years, that that temple that was built by Solomon served its original purpose, which was to be a place where the priests would go and the people could come and worship and offer sacrifices. They could pray and sing and worship. But as I'm sure you're aware, Israel rebelled against God. And general worship, genuine worship, among the Israelis became less and less a priority. And so God, in an act of discipline, brought various nations into Israel to punish them. And in the course of time, Israel's temple went through a series of cycles where it was desecrated and plundered, and then it was renovated and purged and rededicated. So finally, in the year 586 B.C., a man named Nebuchadnezzar, who was the leader of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, swept his army through Israel into the city of Jerusalem and leveled the city, including Solomon's beautiful temple. And a great many of the Jews were taken into captivity. Well, 50 years later, God brought the people back from captivity, at least a small remnant of them, about 50,000. They did so under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. If you're looking for a name to name one of your kids, you might try Zerubbabel. That would certainly be unique in our day. But the first thing that they did is they, they built an altar for the new temple. 
But unfortunately, as often happens, the people became consumed with their own homes instead of the temple. And so for 20 years, nothing was done on the temple. It lay in ruins, as it were, until finally through a man named Ezra, the people got off dead center and they completed the temple. And when that temple was rededicated, some of the people who remembered the first temple wept. They cried. Not for joy, but because it wasn't as nice as the temple that they'd remembered that had been built by Solomon. It didn't measure up. Well, 400 years later, in the year 168 B.C., there was a Grecian ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, there's another name you might want to put on your grandkids. No, no, not him. He, he, was, he was a loser. But this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, persecuted the Jewish people. And he came in and he plundered and desecrated the temple. In fact, he did the unthinkable. He erected a statue of the Greek god Zeus right there in the temple court. And are you ready for this? He offered a pig on the altar of God. He offered an unclean animal. And here's what's ever so revealing. God, through the prophet Daniel, 400 years earlier, had said that this would happen. And that he would foreshadow someone much worse, someone we call today simply the Antichrist. Well, the Jewish people were so outraged at what Antiochus Epiphanes had done is that they rebelled. And three years later, the temple was rededicated by a man named Judas Maccabeus as he led a revolt against the foreigners who were occupying Israel and Jerusalem. It's called the Maccabean Revolt. And the people rededicated the temple. They defeated the occupied army. And today, Jews celebrate that event. You know what we call it? Hanukkah. If you're ever wondering where Hanukkah came from, it came from celebrating the uh, Maccabean revolt where they overthrew the chains of, of Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, here's where it gets interesting. In the year 19 B.C., about 45 years before the event that we're going to look at in a moment, there was a man by the name of Herod the Great. And he set out on a remodeling project of the temple. In fact, so great were his plans for remodeling the temple that he said it was going to be a new temple. And like Solomon before him, he spared no expense. Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, writes that Herod sat out on this project. And are ready for this? He did it to make a thankful return after the most pious manner to God for the blessings I have received from him who has given me this kingdom and to do this by making his temple as complete as I am able to do. In other words, I'm doing this all for God. But you know what? He was a phony. Friend, that was a big lie. 
He rebuilt the temple, or remodeled it more accurately, under false pretenses. He did it because he wanted to make a name for himself, and secondly, because he knew that there was money to be made in organized religion. In commercial religion, as we'll see in a moment. And you know, times have not changed, have they? You know, I'm always amazed when I sometimes see some religious structures. And always they'll say on it, you know, built for the glory of God. And then there in equally large letters is the name of the pastor or the guy who was in charge at that time, making sure that he'll get ample credit. Well, this remodeling project took almost 70 years. And just a few years after it was completed, it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD by a general named Titus. And Jews to this day do not have a temple. Now this structure that was built was incredible. It was something that could be seen throughout the city. The outer walls of this were about a thousand feet on each side, which is the length of three football fields. The lining of the outer wall were rows of high pillars made of white polished marble, and inside there was this very spacious courtyard that extended all the way around the temple proper. It was called the Court of the Gentiles. It was the made of the finest variegated marbles, and it was given that name because that was where both Jew and Gentile alike were welcome. But that was as far as the Gentiles could go. They had to stay in the court of the Gentiles. And there was this massive wall that protected the rest of the temple area from the Gentiles. And written on that wall in both Greek and Latin were the following words. Let no man of another nation enter inside the barrier of the fence around the temple. And I love this. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame that his death follows. I kind of wish we would say that to some people as well today. But you know, it was pretty clear. Here's where you can go and you can go no further. Jewish women were allowed to go into the court of women or into the treasury. Male Israelites could go into Israel's courts. But to go further, you had to be a priest. You had to be a member of the priesthood. And the point that I want to make is that this was an incredibly impressive structure. For this was the crown jewel of Israel. Josephus wrote this. He said the exterior of the building lacked nothing that could astonish either the soul or the eye. From being covered on every side with massive plates of gold, the sun had no sooner risen than it radiated so fiery a flash that those straining to look at it were forced to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain. The reason being that whatever was not overlaid with gold was pure white. Now again, that's an incredibly impressive structure. And Jesus goes there, 
in John chapter 2 at the beginning of his ministry, and he enters the temple. And instead of finding people worshiping God and praying and glorifying God, he finds an oriental bazaar. This once sacred place was now being used for purely secular purposes. But you know, I, I, and I I thought this was a, a very telling insight. The Jewish people were to gather at the temple to worship God on the Passover. And even though Jesus is not going to like what he sees, and probably didn't like what he saw when he went there on previous occasions, Jesus went nonetheless. I want to suggest that he was joyfully attentive to that duty. That means that Jesus didn't blow off his duty to go to church. And I want to be careful what I say next, because I know we're living in unique times, and I understand that, and I'm also not a legalist. You know me well enough. But I am concerned that many Christians today treat church attendance as a matter of convenience or whim. And they sort of just blow it off depending on what other activities are competing for their time. And friend, I think that's wrong. I think it's sad, and I think it's unfortunate. Hebrews 10 says this, Let us not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. Can I just flat out say it? And again, I I hope I'm not stepping on too many toes because you know I love you. But going to church is important. There is no substitute for the gathering together of God's people to worship. And I'm convinced that the church would be stronger today if its members simply shared Jesus' zeal for worship. And so I can't help but Jesus, as he went to the Passover went with a sense of joy, went with a sense of excitement. He was looking forward to going there because that was where the people would praise and pray and worship and remember and confess their sins and offer sacrifices. But when Jesus gets there, his joy is spoiled. And it boils over into righteous indignation. Because John tells us that in the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Now the thing to remember is that pilgrims who came to the temple were required to offer sacrifices. And because in many cases they came from a great distance, For them to bring that animal on that journey would have been a difficulty, difficult thing to do. All of them needed an absolutely unblemished, unspoiled animal to offer. And so they would make that purchase of that animal once they got there. 
Historians tell us that there were four markets on the Mount of Olives, which was just across the Kidron Valley. But what had happened is that the priest saw these markets, and they realized that they were making a pretty handsome profit. And so the priest, specifically the high priest, Annas, decides that he wants a piece of the action. And so he decides, he gives permission for the merchants of his day to set up their own little bazaar right there in the court of the Gentiles. And as best we can tell, that was a fairly new idea. Annas was the one who originated this. It was convenient, and so people would use it. Additionally, priests had a way of rejecting animals that were brought in from the outside. And so it was far, far more efficient for a person to purchase their animal from the priest. And so these animals were conveniently available for purchase in the court of the Gentiles. And these merchants were in collusion with the priest. Probably they were their relatives. You know, one hand always washes the other, right? They had a pretty good thing going. Josephus tells us that at the Passover in AD 66, the Jewish worshipers required more than 250,000 lambs at Passover. Jerusalem at that time would swell in population tenfold. And these merchants would charge these out-of-town worshipers four times the normal cost of an animal. It was outlandish. It was practically thievery. These travelers were at the mercy of the big city prices at a major tourist event. And if you've ever traveled to a big city during a holiday season, you know that oftentimes they'll jack the prices up. That's exactly what had happened here. Now, if you couldn't afford a lamb to offer, the Old Testament law allowed you to offer a pair of pigeons or doves. But historians tell us that the merchants were charging people the equivalent of $4 for a pigeon that should have cost five cents. Additionally, every male Jew was expected to pay a temple tax at the Passover. And the only coins that were accepted were a Tyrian coin because of its silver content. And the fact that the other coins, the coins of the Romans and the Greeks, often would have on them an image of a ruler, and the Jews viewed that as idolatrous. And so people had to go in and they had to exchange their money. And oftentimes in the exchange of that currency, it was always done for a profit. Now that was the setting into which Jesus finds himself in John 2. He goes into the temple and he doesn't like what he sees. And his reaction is dramatic and it is violent. Look at verses 15 and 16. It says, Jesus made a whip out of cords and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house 
into a market. That word drove is the same word used for Jesus casting out demons. Now, why did Jesus act this way? Well, we know that later on when he cleansed the temple three years later, he made this statement. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? Now, John doesn't record that Jesus said that, but I'm sure it was on his mind. When Jesus went there, there was financial corruption and exploitation of those who came to worship God. Now, Jesus doesn't complain about the fact that these people were not praying as they should, but I'm sure that was happening. There was a, a, a corruption going on there. It was, it was a cancer. It was rotten to the core. And so Jesus says, get these things out of here. You're, you're making my, my father's house like a bazaar. The temple courts were to be a place where the scriptures were read, where sacrifices were offered, where people came to pray. One commentator said, as Jesus scanned the great court of the Gentiles, he saw sheep, oxen, fowl, and everything that goes with them. Can you imagine what it must have smelled like? I'm not a fan of sheep and oxen and being all together. It can stink. There was huckstering, bartering, and haggling over the weight of a coin. In other words, the one thing that the temple was made for, and that is the reverent worship of God, was well nigh impossible given the commercialism that was taking place. And again, given the picture that so many people have of Jesus, this is almost unbelievable. I mean, this is shocking to think that Jesus would do this. I can just see Jesus taking a cord as a whip and racing from one booth to another, overturning tables and physically driving out the shopkeepers. Now, it's interesting is that some people try to downplay the aggressiveness of Jesus. They said he never really used the whip. It was simply a prop. He was just using it as a threat of force. You know, kind of like when you're disciplining your children or your grandchildren and you pull out the spanking spoon or whatever you choose to use. And you say, look, if you don't behave. <laughs> By the way, we no longer use any discipline on our grandchildren. We let the parents do that. They can run wild. We've got all four of them here today, four from Dustin. And some people say, well, well Jesus really didn't, he, he really didn't use that whip. And yet I would argue that Jesus did use it on these men. And Jesus reveals in this that godly people are passionate people. There's nothing wrong with passion. There's nothing wrong with being passionate about the things of God. Can I say this without apology? There are occasions when you have to stand up for what is right. When you say, that's it. I, I, I am not going to tolerate this. This is so out of line with God's design. 
I appreciate what Hugh McIntosh, a Scottish theologian, said. He said, lack of indignation at wickedness is a sign not of a poor nature only, but of positive unlikeness to Jesus Christ. Can I remind you that becoming a Christian means that you get a backbone and you don't lose one? We need to be passionate in our love of what is good and our hatred of what is evil. Jesus hated what he found in the temple. Now, admittedly, given the size of this crowd and the number of merchants that were there, it's hard to imagine how one person could do this until you realize that he was God. And no doubt, even though he was one man doing this, the crowd was scared spitless. And he demonstrated anger and wrath and rage at these people who truly, truly deserved it. Friend, Jesus was not just the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was also the Lion of Judah who is going to come and judge. And so these merchants fled in terror, as the prophet Micah had foretold in Micah 3, where he said, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like silver and gold. And can I just add, and I, I found myself deeply offended by what one commentator said. He described this as a temple tantrum. You know, as if what Jesus does here could be likened to a preschooler who throws a temper tantrum because he or she doesn't get their way. Friend, this is the wrath of a holy God against the commercialization of religion and the desecration of God's temple. What they were doing was flat out wrong. And I would argue, considering other biblical precedents for blasphemy in the temple, the merchants were fortunate to escape with their life. For Jesus shows them no mercy. He's showing his zeal for worship. And his disciples observing this scene say, quoting from Psalm 69.9, zeal for your house will consume me. For Jesus had a burning intolerance for false and perverted worship. He objected to a, to a church that was more interested in commerce than it was worship. And you know, that's a problem we have today. I don't have to cite the example, but I could give you one after the other after the other of churches, ministries, and Christian organizations that seem to exist for no other purpose than to solicit contributions and to make money. And churches today take on the feel of a comedy club, a movie house, or a stage production. And you know what Jesus is doing here? He's insisting that holiness and reverence are to characterize worship in God's house. And I'm not suggesting that there can't be times of humor and levity in a church service. I think that's good. I think it's helpful. And hopefully we never cross the line. 
You have to know when to be serious and when to stop. It's not to suggest that a church cannot have a table where items are sold to provide people with books and recordings and godly literature and other items that will help them grow. But it does mean that activities that clutter and detract from the godly elements of worship, from reverent praise, from confession of sin, from prayer, teaching of God's Word, the administration of the ordinances, those things are to be removed. We have to be cautious. Bruce Maline accurately says this, for Jesus... Worship is a matter of the gravest importance. And as the Messianic king, he claims lordship over it. A significant portion of the Bible is devoted to the regulation of worship, and we are sadly misled if we imagine that the quality of what we offer in worship services or the devotion with which we participate are matters of peripheral importance. Can I just say this? What we do in worship reveals what we think about God. And when a worship service is dry and joyless, it reveals that those people believe in an absent God. When a service stirs up emotional enthusiasm and fills the worship service with entertainment, it believes that that God that they serve needs spiritual help. A church that focuses only on money reveals a God who is unable to meet our needs. And what we need to do is we need to reverently, respectfully, graciously, lovingly Lift our voices in song. And what's unfortunate today is we're being told we've got to do the exact opposite. You know, if we want to grow, if we want to reach out, we've got to do this and that. And the purity of worship is set aside. Let me close with three lessons. And they're these. The first is this event vividly pictures the depravity of man and God's attitude toward people who sell and commercialize religion for a profit. I, I find it ever so heartbreaking to see what is being done today in the name of religion. And all you have to do is turn on the television set or listen to the radio and you're told if you will just send in that seed faith offering and you get your prayer cloth or miracle oil you know God will bless you friend and it's all a sham to make money I think it is disheartening the absolute greed that exists in church churches and ministries today and it's sickening I've been engaged in pastoral ministry now for over 40 years and one of the things that's truly bothered me is that in those 40 years, I've been lumped together with some of those clowns. And that's unfortunate. Second thing I see here is the importance of pure, genuine, authentic 
worship. Jesus was offended. He was angry because people were unable to worship. Later, Jesus will say this in Matthew 15. He says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. When we get together, we we get together for genuine, authentic, heartfelt worship. We come and we plead with the Almighty to come and manifest His presence in a powerful way so that He will speak to us. Now there's one final lesson, and it's this, and I didn't get a chance to develop it. You're going to have to read the rest of the chapter, and it's simply this. God's dwelling is no longer in a building or a structure. God's place of dwelling is in the church. And you know what the church consists of? It consists of you and it consists of me. People who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 says this, Do you not know that you, you are a temple of God. And that the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. Beloved, God calls us to live holy lives. Because he doesn't appreciate phoniness. He appreciates authenticity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this recorded event from the life of Jesus. We pray that we would have time this week to really reflect on this message. Help us perhaps sometime this week to pull out our Bibles And in some cases, they're going to need to be dusted off. And read this passage again. Grant that each one of us would painfully ask the hard questions whether or not we have allowed the things of the world to creep into our lives and overtake us. We're the temple of God. It's not found in Jerusalem. It's not found in downtown Salt Lake or any other place. The true temple of God is found in us as individuals. And so I pray that by your grace and your strength, we would live lives of holiness and separation from sin. May we be the salt and the light that you called us to be. And we pray as God's people towards that end, in Jesus' name. And everybody agreed and said, amen.